0: So welcome to If Not Us, the podcast dedicated to change makers and those trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Sarah Ackerman, and I'm excited to introduce my guest for this episode on how politics works in 2021 with Georgia State House Representative Josh McLaurin. Welcome. Josh.
1: Thank, Thank you for Christmas. having me.
0: Of course. Oh, my
1: goodness. I don't mean to step on your thanks with
0: my thanks. No, it's a it's a mutual appreciation society. So it's perfect. I'm down. Um, so to dive in to for the listeners, uh, tell me about your background and how you got started in politics. That's the full question.
1: Sure, yeah. I grew up in Cobb County and went to high school in the metro area, uh, went to UGA for undergrad, went to law school, uh out of state, came back, uh, and I was about to go travel for a little bit um just to take a couple months off from being a lawyer, uh, because it's not always fun to be a lawyer. Uh, so shocking I I was considering a career change and I was considering that change in late 2016 and then uh, something happened that I didn't like which was that Donald Trump was elected president and I felt really bad about that and I decided I wanted to do something to give back somehow or get involved I think a lot of people had a, a feeling in that moment of what can i do or why did how did we get here and what types of actions do we need to take to make sure this doesn't happen um so i started thinking about running for office and uh the first opportunity for that that i saw was when tom price got elected or excuse me appointed to uh, the department of health and human services or actually trump announced that he was going to make that appointment but obviously it was before january of 2017 so we couldn't make it yet but it started this domino uh, effect of people talking about, okay, well, there's gonna be an open seat in Georgia's sixth congressional district and who's gonna fill it. And Democrats didn't have a clear candidate yet. And I thought, you know, there's, there's maybe a little bit of a privilege and overconfidence that goes into this choice. But I said, all right, I will try to run for Congress with no political experience. Um, but then somebody else who had never run for Congress before who was also a late 20 something white guy, uh, his name was John Ossoff, uh, decided that he would do it instead And here's the thing, he had the endorsement of the late John Lewis, he had $250,000 raised. Uh, So it was cute that I wanted to try. I thought, you know, it's like a nice thing uh, to think about. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, maybe a better thing would be for for John to run for that seat. Uh, And there are a number of other people interested too. But I got out of the race. And I said, you know, John's the guy. And a handful of Democrats were like, well, we didn't know you before this, but maybe you should run for a state house because we need people to do that. And we're probably going to flip a number of seats in the 2018 midterm. And I said, you know what? That sounds cool. And I spent all of 2017 basically trying to find a legal job. Uh, so here I am thrown back into law practice unexpectedly uh, that would allow me to run for house. And I finally figured it out. And I sort of have an arrangement where... I have a part-time job doing law, and then the other half, I at that time I was running for office, but then I won in 2018 uh, and became a state representative starting in January 2019, and have served since, got re-elected in 2020, uh, and since then have just been doing sort of a steady diet of uh, law and politics, depending on what month it is.
0: That uh, that is is two uh, very interesting and uh, I don't want the fillings, not the word I'm searching for, but they're two very big jobs. So how does your life switch between when you're in session versus when you're not in session? Is it like 100% in session? And then you go like six months on six months, six months off.
1: I haven't tried hypnotherapy, but I want to, like, I <laughs> want somebody to take like a pocket watch or something in between legislative session and the rest of the year uh, to be like, you are no longer a full-time politician. You are now a lawyer, you know, stop checking Twitter. Um, and then likewise, like when it's December and I'm about to go into January, which is the legislative session from uh, January through April or, or through March really every year, I want somebody to be like, okay, you need to like tolerate the toxicity of the Capitol building again, steal yourself. You Ready, know. set, go. Exactly. Yep. And So that transition's difficult. And and truthfully, as you sort of alluded to, these jobs kind of run through the whole year, both of them. And so you kind of have to just squeeze the balloon and like put some of the energy in one place primarily at one period of time and then shift that energy back. Um, But it's, so to get to the larger point, we have a part-time legislature. And I think the original uh, idea, you know, some decades or however many hundreds of years ago, potentially, was we would have citizen legislators who like, I don't know, and hopefully this doesn't sound dismissive, but like drive their tractor from, you know, a rural area up to, from the farm, like up to the Capitol, like literally, right? Uh, To serve in the state legislature and uh, and then come back when that uh, period of time was over. And in a world where we feel worried that people are gonna become career politicians and professionalize in a way that we don't want, but it's still possible for citizens to maintain that groundedness, I can sort of see that logic. But Mm -hmm. I think the problem that we have is that you've got essentially a professional legislature at the state level and at the federal level. The problem is that you don't pay the state level to be professional, you don't pay people to be full-time. So what ends up happening is the fully professionalized functions that happen at that state legislature involving complex interactions with corporate lobbyists, Uh, You know, government agencies that spend billions of dollars, all these professional interactions are concentrated Mm -hmm. into the hands of just a handful of people who, for whatever reason, have the resources to either pay staff or, you know, fulfill leadership roles in making all these decisions for everybody. So I I think I'm biased, but I think we get shortchanged by having a part-time legislature uh, in which we're spending $26 billion plus of state money per year. But letting about 10 people decide how it's done, and then the 180 or 230 people, if you count the House and the Senate, 236 to be exact, who should be weighing in on the decision, have very little to do with it except to sort of either vote yes or no, do a rubber stamp. Um, Mm -hmm. That doesn't serve the people, in my opinion.
0: How would you, like in your ideal world, how would it function? As a full-time legislature?
1: Yeah, and it doesn't need to be like Congress, which I think Congress people make at the U.S., uh, House and Senate level, federal level, make like almost $200,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people assume that state legislators make that much money and that it is a full-time job and it's and super not. I mean, some so in this state, we make 17,000 a year basically for our base, plus uh, per diem payments while we're in session that maybe take it up to about like 25. Mm-hmm. Um, that's better than in some places like Texas, where they make like, I think it's like 7,000 a year uh, total which you wanna talk about leaving service only to the wealthy, the retired, small business owners. Right. It's, that effect is even more pronounced there. So what I would do is raise the salary. I mean, I would, I would make it so that state legislators made anywhere from 50 to 70 a year. I mean, one smart idea is to peg it to median income mm-hmm. so that symbolically and actually, it's like legislators are drawn from the people, but in a way where people can afford to do this full-time if they need to. Mm-hmm. Right. And that would allow people to focus their full energy on serving constituents, coming up with policy ideas, all the things that we expect from our elected representation that, quite frankly, we we squeeze people to a point where they can't really do as good of a job as
0: they'd like to. Right. That totally makes sense. And uh, so speaking about what you can do for your constituents, how do you stay in contact with yours while you're in session, out of session, when you're not sure. actively campaigning?
1: email, phone, Twitter, and then when it's not COVID, uh, in-person interactions. Mm -hmm. So it's a mix of these things. Uh, A lot of people, when they contact state legislators, a lot of times people don't know who their state legislators are or what state legislators do. Mm -hmm. There's some websites like One Click Politics where it'll send like a forum email. So we've learned to recognize like when someone's just clicking a button versus actually sitting down at their computer and writing something. And my opinion is, you know, given that it's a part-time job or in theory, and given that we only have so many resources, I try my very best to respond to every communication that is individualized from a constituent who's trying to write me about anything. And I I have the capacity to do that. Um, In terms of responding to the flood of like auto-generated, you know, here's what I think about this issue. I think at some point you just have to say, you you have to take it into account. You have to say, I'm getting, you know, 50 form emails on, this one issue that's gonna matter. And in in the past, I've taken votes that have been counter to what the like logic of the building has been based on a whole bunch of constituents all reaching out and saying the same thing. And I voted with them instead of what some other folks like my colleagues were doing, Um, but so it, it matters, but you know, it's all in varying degrees and you just have to kind of fly by the seat of your pants. And sometimes these votes happen 10 minutes after they're announced and you're like, oh, this bill's going to be on the floor. And then maybe the constituents and their advocates get their emails and calls in in time, or maybe they don't. So you just have to constantly feel it out and get a sense of what you think is right.
0: Yeah. I can only imagine what it's like to get some of those forum emails. I remember when ResistBot first came out, I used it to message my then representative, Nakima Williams. And it came out as just hot garbage. I had to write her an apology after she's like, I think this is what she was so sweet with it. She's like, hi Sarah, yeah. like, thank you so much for reaching out. I think this is what you're trying to say. And I and I do stand with you on this issue. And I just wrote her back after saying what it had auto-generated. And I was like, I have to apologize. That was my first time using this system. And thank you for hey. getting back to me. Thank you for like everything that you do. But also um thank you for taking the time to like sift through this to be like what sort of Garbage is it was just so bad because it would ask you one off questions and I was providing what I thought were thoughtful answers, but in the form field did not work. Um, learn, but we
1: joke about those emails, like specifically the resist bot emails, because they were written at a time in like Trump world. For Republicans who run the state legislature, who are not responsive on progressive issues, and like you say, I think an unwitting person who doesn't realize what the ResistBot's doing, because these emails are scathing, and oftentimes they have these like weird typos and things in them too, so they come off as like like a drunk person like yes. vomiting progressive anger essentially. And so we 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 joke. We'd be like, "Did you just get that ResistBot email on this bill? Like, it's so mean, you know?"
0: And that's you you save those rantings for Twitter. Um, you don't yeah. email your Your representative, like at least be respectful, at least attempt to be. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm happy that at least there's some humor that's appreciated from them because my goodness, it. I hope she had a laugh because I felt terrible. I was excited to like reach out, and I think that was like my first actual uh, attempt at contacting some, like contacting a representative, be like this issue is important to me. Um, So I was grateful, but I realized I did it all wrong, or you know. Well, part of this comes with the job.
1: So like, let me tell you a quick story that I really like in terms of, it kind of bundles together a number of themes about my experience at least being a white, a straight white male Democrat, you know, during this period of time. And for reference, there's 77 members of the Georgia House Democratic Caucus. And I think under 10 are white men in that group, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's an interest. I mean, that's great in terms of diversity and the, the number of people that we have in the caucus reflecting different backgrounds truly shows our strength. But what it also means is if you throw a rock and you hit a white person or a white guy inside the Capitol, 90% chance or greater that they're a Republican. Mm-hmm. So on the day that the Senate committee that passed out, you know, the abortion bill from 2019. Mm-hmm. I think so that's that, why I emailed her. Sure. So the, the, um, right. And that would, that was one of the biggest points for constituent advocacy and, and that organizing, that sort of thing. So that whole process was like long, drawn out trauma that just wouldn't end, right? Because you've got the committee process on both sides of uh, the building, both the House and the Senate. You've got the votes themselves on the floor. You've got the whole federal court process. So that, it's just like a months long trauma for everybody going through this. Mm-hmm. And at one point of it, the Senate committee passed it out by like a three to two vote uh, to go to the next Senate committee or get eventually to a Senate vote. And for whatever reason that day, I was in the building, it's good to stay involved even if it's not your chamber, just to like be there in solidarity, whatever. So I go to the front of the Senate committee room where some other reps are sitting and I just watch the committee hearing from that point. But of course I'm in a suit, white guy, have a badge, have my briefcase and I'm sitting at the front watching this and as I'm walking out, these two women who are there in full advocacy gear with the buttons and they're like ready to fight, which is awesome. Of course, right after the vote happens, they look me in the eye and they hiss. They're like, I want to look at my camera for this. Like, you know, like, like super intense, like, you know, directing their energy towards me because, I mean, I think the fair assumption is you're a Republican who supports this bill.
0: Right. right? I'm also curious, and, why hissing?
1: Well, I think I, I heard a hiss. I can't like guarantee you that it was like a synchronized, like, right. you know, right. could have been a
0: that guy. Let's,
1: yeah. And I, I mean, there might have been a boo wrapped up in it too, but it was essentially like a very negative, you know, it's directed <laughs> at you sound. And it, you know, I, it sucks. Like, I don't, I don't like having that happen. But I also think about it, you know, like, what's my role here? Is my role it like who needs to, somebody has to carry the, the trauma in this moment. Who's going to do it? Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to walk over to them and say, uh, I'm sorry, actually, uh, ladies, I know this is a really upsetting moment for you, uh, but I'm not the person you should be hissing. At. Like, is that, is that really a good use of my time? Mm-hmm. Does that even make sense? Is that fair, given that they're carrying disproportionately more trauma from that moment than I am? And so to wrap all that up, I mean, the reason I, I like that story is because it expresses what I feel like my obligation is under the building. Which is in some ways, even though Democrats can't control what's happening, it is our job to try to A, redirect the narrative towards the issues we think matter, and B, to just carry some of this weight. It's like people who feel like we are their voices inside the building, and we are. I mean, we, we're literally elected representatives. But even if we can't cast the deciding vote, it's our job to sort of absorb that toxicity that pessimism, that, that despair really about, are things gonna get better? Or are people gonna stop trying to take these rights away from us? Mm-hmm. And, and to, despite carrying that, still maintain this vision or this optimism that it's worth it to show up, it's worth it to fight. And, and the same thing can be said too, of everybody in the advocacy and organizing space and in that chain of mm-hmm. all the people who carry truth down the conveyor belt to power, because it's painful to do that and to open your heart to these, these real problems that we all face, or that some people face a lot more than others, and then lose. Like to, it's almost like getting rejected in kind of a normal sense. You put yourself out there, I want the world to look better in this way, and then you keep getting shut down. So mm-hmm. that is what I feel like politics in the minority is all about to maybe get to, I know, we might've been uh, gonna discuss that, but yeah. So but that's the theme.
0: Leading into that, like, how do you keep a, how do you keep your head up? How do you keep a good attitude? Like you're a Democrat in Georgia. And I know things in the last election cycle, uh, make us look super progressive, Um, but it was close. And the, the state house makeup is so different than uh, what we were able to produce um, in the 2020 election. So tell me about, all of that like how what do you do to like make sure that the issues that you're uh, that you passionately care about and that your constituents pa- are passionate about come forward and then how do you navigate like what politics is in this year i'll start
1: by saying there's some things we really can do right mm-hmm. i mean anything that has to do with local government particularly in fulton county mm-hmm. uh where you can help connect people to resources, or assuming that you're on the same side of the aisle, it's even easier, right? If you know other Democratic elected officials you can connect people with who can help them at a local level, that's always a rewarding use of time. Or government agencies, which, you know, even if Republicans are in power, we have a professionalized government bureaucracy that responds to requests regardless of what party you're in, which is obviously super important. It's like a basic aspect of the rule of law. So there's things like that that we can always do. But on the big ticket items that have to do with like SB 202, the bad elections bill, I'll just call it that, you know, hope your viewers don't mind, um, or this abortion legislation or or any of these, these big things where you lose if you're in the minority like we are, um, you know, I would say, so I, I spoke to this a minute ago, you have the responsibility to make the case for why it's wrong or why we need something different. So that's an obligation. Um, but I'll also say, you know, while winning is fun and winning takes away some of this despair, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, Of, oh, we, we, you know, every now and then if you get both US senators from your party and flip the entire Senate, get, you know, billions of dollars or trillions or whatever of relief, like that's a really good thing. You know, apart from the obviousness of that, I would say I've been really grateful to understand that being in the minority is kind of where democracy happens. If you Mm -hmm. think about it, you know, democracy is about protections for the minority. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons, you know, it's important that the majority decides what happens, That that is democracy. But an equally important part of democracy is protections for the minority. This idea that just because you don't have 50 1% or whatever, that you're not totally shut out. Mm -hmm. And in a healthy democracy, we do listen to the minority, but that assumes the minority productively engages, right? That they're playing within the same system, i.e., at some point we compromise and try to take care of the good for everybody and not just jam the system up because we're not getting what we want. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm sort of rambling, but to get to my point, when you're out of power, when you're in the minority, that's when it hurts the most. And because of the pressure that comes from that pain and that, ooh, fist shaking, I wish we were in power, in a lot of ways, the minority is where real innovation happens in democracy. Because when you're in the majority, you kind of do what you want. And it, it's almost like this adage about when you lose, that's when you learn a lesson, but like winning is not where you learn. And ultimately I think the cycle, the pendulum keeps swinging between winners who keep getting more comfortable with winning, which makes them out of touch. And then the, that, that pendulum swings back to the minority who's just been br- just steeping in this energy of like, how do we get better? How do we appeal to more voters? How do we adjust our message so that we can have power again? And to the larger point about, you know, I'm hinting at obstructionism in the US Senate, Mitch McConnell and whatever, but the reason why this is such a unique and terrible moment for our democracy writ large is because rather than engaging in that deliberative process where the minority asks itself, how did we lose? Why did we lose? How can we get better? The minority is like, oh, F this we'll just break the game. If we can't win, we're not going to try to improve our connection to the electorate. We're just going to break the system and nobody wins.
0: We're going to take our ball and go home.
1: hundred percent. And then if you don't have both parties in a two-party system collaborating on the basic stuff, like the rule of law, what are we all here to do type stuff?
0: Baseline. It's bad news. Um,
1: yep. So yeah, that's maybe i talk too much there, but, yeah. but I think that's, you know, being in the minority gives you an appreciation for how this ebb and flow works mm-hmm. and how important it is in a healthy system to stay connected to what voters actually want.
0: Do you feel like your, um, like political philosophy has shifted over time? Like, uh, do you feel like when you started running, even when, uh, your very first campaign where you're like, I'm going to make a change and then hello, John Amosov uh, was your approach then, uh, if you had fantasized about like what it would be like to actually be representing your constituents, has that shifted to where you are today?
1: I think I have a better appreciation now for what actually matters, like what moves the ball and what voters, media, politicians actually care about. Mm -hmm. Um, we all have our own, like my space poetic narratives about what we think is important in life. Like we all start there, right? Where we with, you know, our three, myspace top nine we like don't actually have enough friends to get to the full nine so like the the three people who read our myspace are like oh my god i love your heartfelt ideas so like every human being starts there and you move into a political space and you realize people may not give much of a crap about your like heartfelt myspace version of what's happening in the world right like your words your narrative to describe something is less important than what builds coalitions, what we can rally around. And so even at like the, the county party level, like North Fulton Dems or, you know, women activists in the, in the North Atlanta area who are activated by Trump, John Assoff, whatever, who I got to know over the course of representing that area, you start to develop this powerful group mind, you know, never doubt what a committee group of small people can do is the quote, right? And then that, that coalition building that uh, idea of what you can coalesce around grows and grows and grows. And you start to learn how to identify with and speak the language of an even, an ever larger group of people. Mm -hmm. Some people call this talking points, right? But the idea is basically that you are connecting with large groups of people in an efficient way. So when I say the two words expand Medicaid, those two words contain meaning and stories for millions of people. Mm-hmm. And when I express that I stand for that and I learn how to speak that language and speak directly to those stories and the importance of it, now I'm becoming a more effective politician who's moved away from my, like, my space rants about why I'm upset about Trump. And mm-hmm. so that's the thing that I've gotten better at and I think that any politician grows accustomed to is, in a way, it's like forced humility. Like, even if you're not naturally humble, even if you're like, want, you're trying so hard to stay arrogant and self-focused. You just won't succeed unless you have at least some way of speaking a language that belongs to more people than just yourself.
0: So, that brings up a really interesting point because expand Medicaid makes sense. People know what that is. Are you ever frustrated with um, some of the talking points that kind of bubble to the surface? For example, uh, instead of um, uh, redistributing police budgets to be more community focused uh, or to have more appropriate resources for certain people in the community, whether they are, it's a like a mental health call versus a violent crime. Um, we, we've we talked about this internally before uh, of like, defund the police might not be the best representation. That might not be the best two words to use.
1: And Oh my God. I, I love that you're putting me on the spot about this. There's some Democrats who'd be like, this has been a great Zoom call, bye. bye. You know, and just like turn it off. Um, so this is a fascinating moment in terms of political messaging, because I don't get the sense that there was some sort of like democratic side Koch brother type figures who like seated defund, right, defund the yeah. police. So that I, I truly believe that that phrase came from a grassroots and surged upward in the midst of everything that happened last year. 100%. Right. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, who are those people, right? Who are the activists who are calling for this? I tend to believe that the people using that phrase are the communities that Democrats need to be listening to. I really truly believe that. Um, and, you know, there's people out there like AOC who say, let me define for you what defund the police means. It It's a suburb. And she has this like brilliant quote where she's like, you know, where police presence is minimized because it isn't needed because the suburb from a socioeconomic perspective has everything that it needs to offset the social ills that cause the harms that people then respond to by saying, oh, more police, right? Mm-hmm. So, but that's, that's a lot of words. It's hard to pack all of this explanation or even your initial attempt at this where you were like, redistribute police budgets, blah, blah. blah. Right.
0: Yeah, defund the, right. So much shorter.
1: It is. And so then you get into conversations about like, what's the difference between an activist and a politician? What kind of handshake do activists and politicians need to have? Are we okay with activists using one phrase, politicians saying something different or ignoring maybe the, the all the way up volume of one Mm -hmm. phrase, you know, when democratic officials step in and they turn that volume down a little bit. Right. Is that a problem? I think these are, these are real and important conversations that we're having right now as a party, as a community. And I, I obviously here, I'm not giving you like some clear answer about,
0: Wait, well, I don't, I don't know if there is a clear answer. Like I, precisely when working at a marketing agency, like of course, language matters and there are going to be things that we're when we're trying to reach the widest amount of people, like the, maybe the phrase defund the police isn't gonna get across necessarily what most people, like the majority would feel comfortable with. There will be people comfortable with it, but like to reach a little bit further, are there different words to use that still get across that message that uh, that will still be impactful and still convey the same thing? I don't know. Um, we haven't really workshopped uh, specifically a defund the police like counter phrase to see if that's gonna to work, but, um, just hearing that and knowing that on a very like visceral level, like you can see why people who don't listen to the expanded version of it, don't understand what's going on or don't understand what's actually being proposed because they just hear, you want my community to be less safe because I associate safeness with police presence.
1: Another thing that's interesting about this, and I completely agree with what you just said about how it's, sorry, my phone okay. is dying. I, I hope we make it through, I think we will. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think actually part of the point of using a phrase like that is to be incendiary and mm-hmm. to say, we want you to feel like, you know, the system that you're using to keep yourself safe, basically from black people. I mean, it's racialized, right? That your system only protects some people and not others. And that's the system that we want to get rid of. Yeah. We want to get rid of a white supremacist system is I think what these communities are saying and I agree completely on that point of, we cannot in this country coexist peacefully, you know, the whole no justice, no peace uh, mm-hmm. mantra with a police system or a government, you know, use of force apparatus that has, has a racial hierarchy in it. Yeah. You know we, we can't have peace in that system. And so what I like to do in response to the defund conversation is say, can we ask the question why people are saying defund? Like, instead of trying to box it down to like, yes or no, one or zero, do you support defund or not? Can we at least ask, can we be thoughtful Mm -hmm. and and address the issues we were just addressing and say, okay, if this system isn't serving us, then we have to reimagine it, right? We have to have dedicated mental health services. and We have to invest in communities, healthcare, job opportunities, education. We have to think more holistically about it. Um, And those are the priorities we need to have. And those are affirmative priorities. Those are not just like, you know, Punch you in the face, like, you know, clickbait type slogans. Not to say that that is one, but it kind of is, right? Um, designed to agitate because the whole point of agitating is to get to a different location. It's mm-hmm. not agitation for the sake of agitation. It's we want to unsettle a bad status quo so that we can move the pieces around and settle again in a better status quo for the time being. Yeah. Um, so I think we, we would all be served at a policymaking level to have that kind of a conversation, right?
0: Yeah, that's a, a really wonderful, I don't wanna say like note to wrap up on, but like a very a very sweet thought of just, yeah. I'm not gonna try to encapsulate everything that you just said in one sentence because it's not gonna work.
1: No, um, it's oh, it's fine. I mean, it, and part of it too is, it, sorry, I don't mean to keep like right. rolling through, but it's like acknowledging that we don't have the answers. Like I yeah. am a democratic politician and I'm not, I'm not representative fully of where communities need me to be yet. And, and there, we have a process, we have a primary uh, uh, election process that if I'm not leaning forward enough into change that we need, that we get somebody who is. Mm-hmm. And, and so I try my level best to balance all the competing forces and to lean as much as necessary. But there's a certain humility I think everyone should have about politics, which is it's not that you need to like be canceled, killed, like you know taken away, if you're wrong about something, you might be wrong about something, you might be wrong about plenty of things, but trust the process, right? Trust the engagement of voters that if we inform people well enough and get enough people to polls and don't block their access, that collectively we can make decisions that we need. And if it's time for some leaders to bow out, then they'll bow out and Mm -hmm. and we'll get new ones who are more progressive, better suited to the challenges of the generation. So. With that little bit of not taking yourself too seriously and that that bit of humility and if we didn't all get so wrapped up in like are we all right all the time about everything and just did our best I think that we would all be better off
0: yeah I hundred percent agree with that so with the next I know you're out of session now correct
1: yes we go back in. well we have a special session to do redistricting
0: in the fall oh that's right that fun yeah. thing which is a whole exactly. other topic we won't pick at quite yet um Aside from redistricting, what are priorities for you going into next year?
1: So I spend most of my focus on criminal legal issues, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about cash bail, the length of probation, um, mandatory minimums, disproportionate uh, fines, sentencing, all the above. Um, And and having this larger conversation we were just having about the criminal legal system, uh, and is it serving us in the way that we act like it should be or is, those are the questions I raise uh, during my, you know, time in session, and a lot of it comes from me serving on the House Judiciary and Civil Committee, which handles criminal legislation that goes uh, through the House. Um, so that's my main focus. But you know, every now and then, constituents will come with interesting issues. Like the suburbs of Sandy Springs and Dunwoody have a weird issue where deer get unnaturally large because people feed them, and there's this cottage industry of people traveling to the area to go like backyard bow hunting, not with guns, but with bow and arrows that are quite powerful and uh, will like use the suburban terrain as sort of like a little special hunting ground uh, to like, yeah, to basically do hunting in the suburbs. And they they market it as like a sport for people to come and try and do. But the problem is these are like people's backyards and you like shoot a huge buck and it might run off and go die in front of like a toddler playing in the backyard somewhere. So we need reasonable regulation of this. That
0: seems reasonable,
1: right? But we have—can you imagine? Can you believe that we have statewide preemptions on local governments uh, doing regulation of weapons? Can you imagine potentially why? Yeah, and so it would—we would need a state-level fix uh, for local governments to be able to do ordinances that, like, fine people for doing this—that sort of thing.
0: I've—I uh, grew up in Wisconsin, where bow hunting was a thing, like but it was never done in your backyard. Um, So to hear and understanding like the levels of congestion in especially the areas that you represent are so much greater than like my little neighborhood in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, How would anyone even assume that would be safe even with the most accurate precision? Oh my goodness, I am, this is- Oh, but
1: like these guys are like, these dudes are like dressed in camo and they've got the like action shots on their website. And the thing is, like, they they tell themselves they can go get permission from property owners and make it okay, but you cannot control where a dying, like, a million-point buck runs off to, you know, after you shoot it, so, I, you know.
0: Well, I mean, um, I can make a million jokes. What sort of camo are they wearing for the suburbs? Is it, like, yoga <laughs> pants and those mini minivans? Stucco. Yeah, yeah no exactly. Idea. Like, you're... Oh, boy. Um...
1: So that's one issue. My, my point is, like, Random things will come up, and that is one of the issues that communities care about, and that we address at the state level. You don't hear about on, you know,
0: CNN. Probably for the best. I would hate to think that like, all of a sudden you would have like this influx of tourism because people were like, "Yeah, that seems like a good idea."
1: Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I think you correctly <laughs> ascertain the situation. So,
0: <laughs> well, um, on that note, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come talk to me on this lovely podcast. Um, thank you, everyone who has been listening to uh for listening uh, we appreciate it and if you ever have a uh suggestion for a guest or a topic by all means go to ifnotus.tv and drop it there so we can do some exploring but uh to wrap everything up just remember that change belongs to everyone and we'll see you next time